Merry Christmas. Hey, if it's your first time here, a special welcome to you today. We're glad that you're here. God's working, going to do some neat stuff. Um, the welcome books are going to come down just now. It's a chance for you to, if you would, just sign in and say you're here and that'll help us. Uh, if you've got any changing information, be sure and fill that out. If it's your first time, if you can fill that out, that would be great. And we can uh, shoot you a note and say thanks for coming. That, that would be terrific. Um, in just a second, we're going to take up the offering as well. And um, we began to talk a couple weeks ago about the opportunity that we have as a church to help plant a church in northwest Ecuador this Christmas. We're going to take up a special offering on Christmas Eve, and, um, and it will all go uh, for that purpose. If you want to give before that, if you're going to be out of town, you can do that as well. Um, I just want to answer a couple of questions because... Uh, it's been fun to talk to people about this opportunity. Some people have said on one end, $87,000, that's an incredible amount of money. That's so much money for planting a church in, in uh, South America. That, man, that seems like an awful lot of money. Know that that, that $87,000 actually um, is representative of, uh, that's the number that, that they use to describe all of the works that they're doing. So in, uh, if um, they're building a church in a poverty uh, in an area of poverty inside a city, obviously, obviously it's going to cost a lot more. If they're doing it rural, it's going to cost a little bit less. But $87,000 $87, is, the, is the amount that they use at Compassion and Stadia to help um, give framework to that. Some other people on the other end have said, $87,000? That's nothing at all. We, you know, we could do that in an instant. And, uh, and so that's been a, a cool thing, too. That's, that's uh, where we're going. We don't know that we're going to be able to do all 87. I, I hope that we can. I think that would be incredibly cool for us. But whatever we receive in that offering will go to help plant a church in, um, in South America, probably in Ecuador. And... Um, we may, if we don't get the full 87,000, we'll partner up with uh, other churches to help do that. And uh, that will allow us to, to um, have a presence there and to invest there in an incredibly cool way to bring light in a dark place. It'll be a place where there is no church at all currently, no presence of Jesus. And, um, and we'll look forward, uh, probably uh, sometime in the next year, maybe in, even in the spring, we'll have a chance to sponsor children um, in the place where that church is, is being planted, which will be a really cool thing. Really excited about that. And in the future, we'll have a chance to go and visit there um, over the next, uh, you know, five years, 10 years, 15 years kind of thing to build a relationship with them, which will be really cool. On our trip, there were 42 of us there. Um, two of the people who were there, actually three of the people were from a church called White Flag Christian Church that's down in Missouri. Um, they're a church like North Point that have said they're going to build a church. They're going to help plant a church in um, in South America, in actually, actually in Ecuador. And one of the guys who was on that trip was a videographer that they have that, that works with their church. And he put together a video for their church to help give them a sense of what's going on down there, what it's like, and, uh, and to hear a little bit more of the story. I'm going to show that video. It's, it's a, a video that was made for White Flag Christian Church, but it describes exactly what we um, hope to do in planting a church there. So go ahead and, and take a look up on screen. Jesús dijo, id por todo el mundo.
Ecuador is a beautiful and diverse country at the top of South America, known for lush landscapes and its Galapagos Islands. Although the government is investing heavily in the tourism industry and resorts, the marginal urban areas have been neglected. Many rural areas lack even the most basic services. Water is brought in by tankers and electricity is illegal in some villages. There is no sewage or public transportation. The villages are settled by squatters with homes built out of cane, often with more than five people living in less than 100 square feet. Many families live on less than a dollar a day. The harsh living conditions lead many to alcoholism and many children grow up without a father at all. Antes de que los niños tengan esta bendición y conozcan del Señor, la vida de los niños era realmente fea. Vivían en condiciones infrahumanas, sin educación, sin alimentación básica, sin el respaldo de papá y mamá. Pero cuando la iglesia se introduce en la vida de ellos, les cambia la mentalidad, les cambia la vida. Poverty is telling people you have no value, you're nothing. The gospel is giving life to people, it's giving hope to the people, and saying to people, you know, you have a reason to live. These are our brothers and sisters in Christ. They happen to be, during this instant on this planet, extremely poor, but they are singing the same worship songs, they're praying to the same Lord, they're opening the same Bible. So worlds apart, but what compassion and stadia are able to be is to establish a bridge. It's not just the child being transformed, it's also the family. We create workshops to train them to generate income. Their finances change, their self-esteem change. Now they have money to eat. Statistics are so overwhelming and it's so complex that they, they have this feeling, since I can't do everything, we wind up doing nothing. It's true, you may not be able to change the whole world, but you could change the whole world for one child. When we arrive to a new community, and we ask to a child, what do you want to be in the future? Having no answer is really heartbroken because there's a new life with so much potential. When we start working through the local church with Compassion International, we go to the same child, the same community and ask, what do you want to be in the future? And we have, I want to be a teacher, a professor, I want to be a doctor, I want to be a professional soccer player. There's a dream there. Because Compassion is church-based, they can only work if there's a church. A church that's strong enough, has a building infrastructure, uh, strong enough to support their programs. Compassion will only work through the local church. Now that's a wonderful thing, but it's also a deep challenge because if there is no local church in that community, Compassion can't uh, incorporate its ministries to the children. So Santa Elena is a coastal community kind of on a hook on the Pacific coast southwest of Quito. Literally, where, where you're planting, where White Flag is planting, no church previously existed. And so if you can imagine a community in deep poverty, desperately needing the hope of Jesus. The grant money that you provided provides for the startup of this child development center and the building, which is an auditorium that will probably seat 200 people, four classrooms typically for age-graded services, kitchen, and some sort of play yard area where the kids can uh, work on social-emotional development. La plantación de esta iglesia nueva aquí en Sinaí va a ser un milagro de parte de Dios. Va a ser el cumplimiento tan soñado. Gracias por creer con nosotros y soñar con nosotros y vivir la realidad de este sueño que ya estamos experimentando.
Pretty cool, isn't it? Neat opportunity that, that God has in front of us. Uh, we're, it, it really is kind of an extravagant idea. It's beyond anything that we can imagine uh, that fits into this whole series of the extravagance of God. Last week we talked about the extravagant timing of God. Today we're talking about the extravagant name of God. Christmas Eve we'll be talking about the extravagant love of God. Um, you know, the, the, I shared last week the definition of extravagant. Ex- extravagant is lacking restraint in spending money or using resources. Does that describe Christmas for anybody? Uh, crazy, crazy. You know, the definition I really like is the one that says exceeding what's reasonable or appropriate. Absurd. That's the picture of God's love for us. Exceeding what's reasonable or appropriate. It's beyond anything that we ever deserve. Anything that we can imagine at all is what God has, the love that God has for us. Names are funny things, aren't they? You know, when you think about names, I, I remember back when I was in junior high in study hall, a big, large room in the cafeteria study hall. We weren't allowed to talk, had to be quiet. But I remember sitting at a table with my friend John Hollinger and in seventh grade, writing out on a piece of paper, all the funny names that we could think of. We were junior high boys, right? So, you know, it was like Ben Dover um, and just in case it was Mississippi, that, those kind of names, you, you know, you, you kind of go there. Um, and and it got me thinking about names at that point. A, l- a little bit later, when uh, when Deb and I were traveling for the college that that we attended, um, we went to a church on a weekend, and we were working with the youth ministry there, student ministry there, and met a girl. Her name was April. We got talking to her and said, "Oh yeah, April, what's your last name?" Her last name was Showers. Um, April Showers. Legitimate. It was. It was one of the. You're. You're kidding. She said, "No, that's my. That's my name." Um, when we were in Columbus, we had a friend in ministry whose name is Kevin Oder. Um, he actually. He, uh, he's now the minister of a, of a really, really large church in Las Vegas, um, uh, Central Christian Church in, in Las Vegas. Kevin's dad's name is Ivan. Ivan Oder. He has. Ivan has a brother named Buford. Um, so his in, initials are B.O. And they call him Stinky. All right. <laughs> Names are funny things, right? When Dev and I were traveling, we met another minister whose name was Harry Pitts. Uh, Harry Pitts. Can you imagine funeral officiated by Harry Pitts? Um, uh, uh, interesting names. Um, when, when Deb and I got married and began to have kids, we had that conversation that, that all young parents have, right? You know, when the baby's going to be born, what are we going to name this child? And Deb and I, as we talked through it, we, we really liked the whole idea of, of choosing names from the Bible. And one of the names that I wanted was the name Zerubbabel, good Old Testament name. Zerubbabel Rubel, that just has a nice ring to it, right? Eh, eh, that didn't make it. Uh, you know, it kind of got nixed in the process. Dale Carnegie, the guy who wrote How to Win Friends and Influence People, um, said uh, one of his most famous quotes is, A person's name is to that person the sweetest, most important sound in any language. A person's name is to that person the sweetest, most important sound in any language. That, that's really true, isn't it? I was thinking about this message. I got I remembered some friends of ours from Virginia, Scott and Karen, that um, I had a conversation with them. Uh, They were in our life group. And uh, it's a conversation I have with uh, a lot of people. I have it with people here at at North Point all the time. How did you get here? You know what? 
What, what's God's story that brought you to North Point and, and allowed you to be a part of the body? And I remember talking to Scott and Scott saying, you know, when I first came, when we first came, we were, we were at a place that we were just kind of struggling, trying to figure out what to do, where to go. And we came to church and you talked to us. He was talking to me. He said, you talked to us. And, and, and we told you our names, Scott and Karen. Um, and, and we thought that that was a really good contact. The next week we came back. And you said, hey, Scott, hey, Karen, how are you guys doing today? He said, you know, what happened over the next several months is that we would keep coming back to church and we would intentionally walk by where you were because we knew that you would say, hey, Scott, hey, Karen, how are you guys doing? Names are important, right? They mean a ton to us. Um, Why is that? It's because a name identifies who we are. A name is associated individually with us, and it helps make sense of who we are. It signifies our relationships. If you grew up here in DeWitt and St. John's in in this part of of mid-Michigan, and your family is here, as soon as you say your name, somebody will say, oh, are you related to these people or these people? Because your name signifies a relationship. Um, when, when I came to North Point, I met, uh, you know, I met the staff talking to people and I met Laura Barnett, who was our custodian at that point in time. We're talking and she said, uh, she said, yeah, my name is actually Laura Rubel Barnett. We share the same last name. We share a common heritage. It, all of a sudden it was like, oh, Laura's special because we're kin, you know. Um, it, it, it goes back a whole bunch of years, right? Like we don't even know when, um, early 1800s, somewhere in there. But we're related because our names matter. Our names give context, common history. Um, our, our names help distinguish kind of where we're from, right? If you meet someone and they say that their name is Pedro... What do you assume that they that they come from a Spanish speaking family? Right. If you meet someone and they say their name is Francois, your assumption is that they're probably um, French parents, whatever. If you meet someone and their name is Myrtle, what do you assume? It's probably a pretty old white woman, right? Uh, Because there are not many kids named Myrtle around these days. Um, if you meet a, a person or you see a person's name and their name is Michaela or Ariel, what do you know? They're probably less than 20 years old, right? Because it's going to be after Dr. Quinn, medicine woman, and after the little mermaid. Um, that's where their names are going to come from. If, if you meet someone now named Peyton, what do you assume? Parents are probably football fans, right? Especially if it's a boy, that that Peyton is going to be named after Peyton Manning. Um, Your name is the ticket that allows you to have access to all kinds of places, right? There aren't very many people that can go anywhere they want in the White House. Not very many people at all. But if your name is Malia or Sasha Obama, you pretty much have run of the place as long as you've got your Secret Service guys around, right? You can, you can go and just enjoy all of that building because your name gives you access there. When you go to a large party that has a long guest list, and maybe they've got somebody at the door that's checking to make sure that, that the people who are there are actually people who are invited, what do they do? They take out their guest list, ask you for your name, and see if your name is on that list because your name 
gives you access. Your name captures the uniqueness of you. You want to have a name that nobody else has so that they know when they speak their name, it means you. Um, As I was working on this message, I I found uh, an article from the Washington Post in September of 2014. There was actually a reprint reprint of a blog of of an English teacher out in Colorado. And, and this whole issue of the importance of names, that I, I thought her blog was incredible. Uh, she, she wrote this. At the beginning of every school year, I try to learn all of my 11th graders' names by the end of our first week together. A thing happens every year, though, when I'm verifying pronunciation, pronunciations of the students' names. This year it happened with two male students whose names have two possible pronunciations. When I asked them for the correct pronunciation, they both responded, whatever is fine. When it happens, as it does every year, I look up from my roster, make eye contact, and say, no, it's not fine. It's your name. Tell me how to say it. Every year but this year, I've glossed over this moment and just chalked it up to the nervousness of my students new to my classroom. I'm direct. Sometimes this intimidates my students until they get used to it. This year, though, in the wake of most recently what happened in Ferguson, Missouri, I paused. My students have been mostly brown and black. I can count the number of white students I've had using fingers and toes, and I still have some digits left over. My students live in poverty and are underserved, underrepresented, disenfranchised. But they do have their names. I've spent my entire teaching career working to educate and empower students who refer to themselves as ghetto, beaners, hood rats, or wetbacks. And yet my students take a lot of pride in their families, their churches, and also their names. Many of them are named for other members of their family. What I hate is that they can be so timid about correcting adults who mispronounce their names. Never before this year had I thought about the learned behavior that causes this. I had thought, maybe it's a cultural thing and they don't want to correct a teacher. Maybe it's embarrassment and I just pronounce their name so poorly. Maybe they're scared of me already. Maybe I'm overthinking it and they've just had their name mispronounced so many times they don't care anymore. But maybe it's because of years of being treated like the other from seeing, hearing, and learning from the experiences of people they know. From the experiences of people like them, they've learned to bow all too quickly to authority figures, even when it comes to how to properly pronounce a name, how to to distinguish them from the other students around them. Head down, don't look. Hands up, don't shoot. But I want my students to look up. I want them to realize that there are many people who see them and value them for who they are. I want them to know that people respect them, their culture, and their individuality. To know that their teachers are not colorblind, that we see them for their cultures, for their abilities, for their strengths and weaknesses, for their contributions to humanity. Most importantly, I want my students to know that I respect them for the whole person they are, including the beautiful names that are sometimes difficult to pronounce. Names are important. Two weeks ago, I 
I shared the story of a young woman named Marcella that I met in, in Ecuador, in Pampanal, the island of Pampanal there. Her husband had left her with two young children, and every day she digs mussels out of the shoreline mud in order to be able to sell them to eat, to feed her children. She makes $4 a day. She lives in the home of a friend and her husband. That friend is 17 and a mother of a young child. This is a picture of her friend. Her baby was a few weeks old when we met her, but her child had not yet been named. Why? Because she didn't know if the baby was going to live or not. The name mattered because as soon as that baby had a name, as soon as that emotional investment was made completely, if the baby died, it would rip her heart out because names matter. Jesus' name matters. It was a very specific name given by an angel. It was given to signify who he was and what he came to do. His name matters. 400 years before Jesus was born, the prophet Isaiah wrote these words in Isaiah chapter 9. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has come. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. If you're like me, you hear the words from Isaiah and you immediately go to the music of George Friedrich Handel. For unto us a child is born. Now, everybody's not like me. I know that that's not where everyone goes. But for me, it's there. I, I can picture that. I can hear the music in my head. It's one of my favorite, um, one of my favorites from the Oratorio Messiah. Because the anticipation that Handel created with the music when he said, and his name shall be called, and it just explodes. The music explodes. Wonderful counselor, mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Think about those names, those four descriptors of who this baby that would be born would be. Wonderful Counselor. This baby that would, that would be born would be the healer of emotional wounds in us. You know, we live in a culture that some people embrace counseling completely. They say, oh, you know what? I've got a hangnail. I need to go talk to my shrink and figure out how to take care of that. And some people on the other end say, you know what? I can handle anything on my own. I would never go to a counselor because that shows weakness. Keep in mind the picture that Scripture paints is that the Savior of the world would be the wonderful counselor for us. There are counselors and then there are counselors, right? There are good counselors. There are bad counselors. There are incredible counselors. The Messiah was to be a wonderful counselor. A counselor can help you see things in yourself that you've never seen before. A counselor can help take you from where you've been to where you want to go. 
A counselor can walk with you and help bandage the wounds. A counselor can help rebuild a broken foundation. A counselor can help you find traction when, when, you've, when you're buried up to your uh, axle. The wheels are buried up to its axle in mud. And you just spin and spin and spin and spin. A counselor can help you find traction to begin to make progress. The Messiah would come and be the wonderful counselor for us. Isaiah says he'll also be the mighty God. In the context of a culture where there were gods for everything... There was this picture that this baby that would be born would be the mighty God. Uh, What is it about about this baby that would make him mighty? He would have this sense of um, not the sense he would have omnipotence. He would have he would have the power that would allow him to do anything on earth. I remember as a kid singing a hymn that went, he could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set us free. He could have called 10,000 angels, but he died alone for you and me. Picture the power that existed in this baby born in Bethlehem. That power was power under control. Jesus didn't respond. He didn't lash back. He chose to endure punishment that he didn't deserve, even to the point of death, so that we could be back in a relationship with God. The, the Hebrew that's there is interesting. The, the Hebrew word is El Gabor. It's the God of might. This baby would be the God of might. El Shaddai is the, is the Hebrew word for God Almighty. And what, what Isaiah was saying was not that this baby who would be born would be the Father God, the God Almighty, he would, that he would be the God of might because he would be the Son of God. He would have this power that that mighty God phrase is a descriptor of who Jesus was, the power that he had. He would be wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father. Again, the Hebrew there is kind of a little bit different than I thought of. Typically, when I sing that song, when I hear Everlasting Father, I think about the father-son kind of relationship that I have with my dad. And I think about the reality that that my dad, even yesterday, uh, we were in Cincinnati to celebrate his 87th birthday. Even now, my dad still continues to parent me in a really, really good way. He's Everlasting Father. But that's not the picture that Isaiah created with his words what what those words actually mean father is is like the originator the beginning and and what those words convey in the hebrew is that that this messiah would be the father of of the ages the septuagint the latin translators said the father of the world to come which takes us back to the beginning of john right Where John said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The everlasting Father says that Jesus is the eternal one that came to take care of us. He came to create this relationship with us. He came to protect and to provide, to encourage and teach and laugh and love us. Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. Literally, the Hebrew describes there that, that the Messiah would be the ruler of peace. That he'd be stamped with the image of the king. And that he would be filled with peace that, that 
surpasses all comprehension, all understanding. He will be able to give us peace that allows you to ride out the most difficult of circumstances without losing control. That He would provide peace that allows you to sleep in a boat when a storm seems ready to sink that boat. That He would have peace that allows you to not rush or get frantic or despair even when a close friend dies. That He would have peace that comes from knowing who you are, why you were created, who you belong to, where you're going, where your citizenship is. Isaiah said this child that's going to be born would be the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. But those aren't the only names that describe this babe. Because if you go to the New Testament, there begin to be names after names after names that describe that the nature of this baby that they describe who he is in his character, in his core for us. I want to just, uh, we could look at a ton of them, but I want to look at just two this morning from the New Testament. Um, Matthew, as he describes the biography of Jesus and describes the beginning of of Jesus' life, says this in chapter 1. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her... The baby that's growing in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Think for a second that every time that we say the name Jesus, if we were to translate that from the Greek to English, we wouldn't use the word Jesus. We would say Savior. The Savior said this. The Savior said that. The Savior did this. Jesus was named, was given the name Jesus because he would save the people from their sins. That word from the angel was a prophecy about the nature of this baby who would be born. And it provided him with a name that described his character. The next verse says this. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. There's this concept that's so fundamental for us at this time of year at Christmas and in our relationship with God to understand that God is not a distant God that's far from us, but that he chose to put on flesh. He he chose to allow blood to flow through his body so that he could come in and among us, that he could be with us. When you hear the name Emmanuel, it means God is with us. God is living among us so that he could experience every temptation that we'd experienced, so that he could physically go through the things that we do, a lack of sleep, all the stress, all the tension, all of the pressures that come from the relationships we have and the, and the tasks that we have in our world. Jesus experienced all of that. And he didn't sin. He came as God on earth to come in and live among us. The names of Jesus provide incredible comfort and insight to people who know him. Those names, 
Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Emmanuel, Jesus. Those names exceed anything that's reasonable or expected. They're crazy because God is a God who's crazy about us. He's a God with an extravagant name. Uh, I want to take a just kind of a, a sidestep in the midst of this message about the name of the Messiah for a second. But it's, it's an important one, I think. Um, I want to talk for a second about the name of Jesus and the name of God. This message is not about taking Jesus' name in vain. But I want you to take some time this morning and think, if that's a normal part of your language, if that's a normal response for you, I want to challenge you this morning to rethink that. Language doesn't just come out on its own. Language is something that we choose to articulate out of our mouths. Language, uh, choosing not to take God's name in vain, not to take Jesus' name in vain, is not just a matter of self-control. It's not just, oh, you know, I'm going to put these clamps down on myself and make sure that I don't say those words anymore. It's not about recognizing that when God gave the Ten Commandments to the nation of Israel, that the third commandment was to, was to uh, not take God's name in vain. You know, the first commandment said um, to love God with all your, all your heart. Second commandment, to not have any idols, to not make any idols. And the third commandment was to not take his name in vain. It's not, the concept of, of not taking God's name in vain is not about any of those things. It is about the relationship that you have with him. Um, Two of our six children have relatively common names in our culture, but the other four, their names are, are probably less common. They're from the Bible, which doesn't make them any better or worse. It's, that's just where we chose their names from. But if you tell me Leah or Gabriel or Josiah or Micah are stupid names, or you say something like, why would anyone in their right mind name their child that? I'm going to get angry as a father because that name identifies my son or my daughter. The moment, the moment that we gave that name to our child, the first time we spoke those words, it was an incredibly beautiful moment. Even now with them grown up, when Deborah I say their names, it's different than when anyone else does. That name has meaning. When, when someone mispronounces their name, it's apparent immediately that they don't really have a relationship with them. They don't know them. They don't love them. Because if they did, they would understand that their name is significant. It's beautiful. It's meaningful. It's extravagant. I, I, love, I love being a part of wedding ceremonies. I, I love leading couples through their wedding vows. Usually the guest can't hear the bride and the groom all that well, but I usually have kind of a front row seat in that process. Most of the time, there's something incredibly tender about the way a groom says his bride's name. The way a bride says, I, Elizabeth, take you, Jonathan, to be my husband. Simply saying the name of that person communicates love, respect, 
passion and, and commitment. In a relationship, names take on special meaning, right? That's why the, the way that we use God's name, the way that we use Jesus' name is so important. It reflects the relationship that we have with them. Sometimes people use names to try and, um, and, and make it appear that they have a relationship with someone when they really don't. Sometimes that gets goofy, especially with pet names, right? It just happens. Um, sometimes people will, will try and connect with people in that way. It reminds me of a story about the, these three guys that were in a restaurant, and they're eating dinner together, and, and close to them is this table um, or actually right beside him with three very, very attractive women. And so these guys are talking. They say, we, we've got to we've got to start a conversation with these with these women. And one of the guys just was really socially awkward. And he said, I don't know if I, I don't know if I can talk to them. They're, you know, they're they're so pretty. I don't know. And, and one of the guys said, look, just follow me, follow my lead. And I'll I'll show you how you how you build a bridge and talk to these ladies that we've never met before. So he goes over goes to, to the most attractive woman, say, looks at her and, and just kind of smiles, lets a twinkle in her eye and says, pass the sugar, sugar. <laughs> she looks up at him and she reaches over the sugar, kind of nods, hands it back to him. He comes back. He said, that's what you do. Second guy gets up, goes over the table, goes to another. One of the ladies says, pass the honey, honey. She looks up at a big smile on her face. The third guy who's just, you know, really nervous. He thinks, okay, follow their, follow their lead, follow their lead. He goes over to the third, to the third uh, woman and says, pass the tea bag. <laughs> Sometimes it doesn't quite work the way that we anticipate, right? When we try and use the name of someone that we don't really know and build a bridge... It always gets exposed. So here's the question. Do you have a relationship with Jesus? Does his name signify for you his character and the closeness of your walk with him? If so, his name is not one to be thrown around lightly. It's an extravagant name, exceeding what's reasonable or appropriate. The name of Jesus is not a talisman. It's not a lucky, uh, a good luck charm. It's not a trump card that you can throw down. It's not a get out of jail free card. You can't say Jesus' name 20 times really fast in a crisis in order to magically change those circumstances. But to call the name of a friend when you're in crisis, it changes everything, doesn't it? Uh, just in the last couple of weeks in one of the life groups here at North Point, uh, one of the members of a life group was out traveling. Um, their car broke down and, and they were just distraught. They were beside themselves because they didn't really have the money to be able to fix their car, didn't know what to do. They had to have the car to get to work, all, you know, all of that there. And they called somebody in their life group. They said the name of the people in their life group. They called them on the phone. And you know what the person in their life group said? You know what? We've got an extra vehicle. Take our vehicle. Use it until you're able to get your car fixed. When you know a person, when you speak their name, it changes everything. What do your neighbors and friends think of when they hear the word Christian? When they hear the name Christian, what comes to their mind? For many in our culture today, it's unfavorable, right? That's the way it was in the first century for the followers of Jesus. 
The, the word Christian was a, a word that was coined to, de, to describe these followers of Jesus that walked around as little Christs. It was an object of scorn. It was a term of derision. But the followers of Jesus embraced that. They said, you know what? It's not really a bad thing at all to be known as a little Christ. They turned that perception around dramatically. What was once bad became good. What was once looked down on was looked up to. What was once condescending became complimentary. How'd that happen? It happened through relationships. People who were serious about their relationship with Jesus forgave even when they were persecuted. People who loved Jesus didn't seek revenge. People who loved Jesus began to love and take care of their family. They began to stand for justice in a way that they never had before. They began to sacrifice for others. They began to say no to self so that they could say yes to things that mattered eternally. What do your neighbors say about you? What name do they associate with you? God has given Jesus an extravagant name, a name that's above every name. Philippians 2 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Peter and John, when they were in front of the Sanhedrin on trial for having healed a lame man, said, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, and it's become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The name of Jesus changes everything. It describes who he is, the relationship that we have. I, I've told you a number of times before, I grew up in the church. Music's always been a big part of my life. And, and as I kept working on this message, I couldn't get away from the songs that I had sung over the years that describe the names of Jesus. The Gaithers, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. There's something about that name. Master, Savior, Jesus, like the fragrance after the rain. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Let all heaven and earth proclaim kings and kingdoms will all pass away. But there's something about that name. Leela Long wrote, Jesus is the sweetest name I know. And he's just the same as his lovely name. That's the reason why I love him so. Jesus is the sweetest name I know. Roy Hicks in the 70s wrote, praise the name of Jesus. Praise the name of Jesus. He's my rock. He's my fortress. He's my deliverer. In him will I trust. Praise the name of Jesus. Luther Bridgers wrote, Jesus, 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 sweetest name I know, fills my every longing, keeps me singing as I go. We bear the extravagant name of Jesus. I think one of the greatest thrills in the world, in our world here on earth, 
would be to be an Olympic athlete and to walk into that Olympic stadium on the opening, in the opening ceremonies and to, and to bear the name of your country on your jacket, on your pants, on your shoes, to represent them. We bear the name of Jesus. It's an extravagant name. A name that exceeds what's reasonable or or appropriate. It's a name that's so full of meaning, that's so full of the character of God, that that it's incredible. It's extravagant. What are you going to do this week to bear that name well, to live out that extravagant name of Jesus? Let's pray. God, when we, when we consider you, when we consider the gift of your son this Christmas, we recognize how, how awesome that gift is, how awesome Jesus is, how incredible. God, words fail when we think about that. Lord, we thank you for your extravagance. For the name, for the character of Jesus. For his willingness to come and die for us, to put skin on, Lord. We thank you to live among us. Help us to bear that name well, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. Let's sing.